Today's book presents a different approach to enterprise strategy and leadership, a complementary approach the author calls pioneering leadership. Rather than simply work within existing parameters of operational excellence, pioneering leadership sees you embarking upon quests. Such quests allow us to systematically explore complex and uncertain futures. We don't set goals in the hopes that a particular future will manifest, rather, we explore multiple futures and prepare proactive stratagems to capitalize on each. Pioneering leadership is challenging to initiate and maintain, especially when compared to the established approach that favors fast results with a bias towards prudence and predictability. But if we can crack through our default thinking, pioneering leadership offers enterprise leaders the chance to obtain the most important thing of all, enduring relevance. It is a great pleasure to welcome author of How to Lead a Quest, a handbook for pioneering executives, the arch wizard of ambiguity himself, Dr. Jason Fox. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's very good to be here. Um, nice to hear those words. I mean, because How to Lead a Quest was written uh, a few years ago now, so um so it's kind of cool to kind of hear this and think, oh yeah, that's actually because you know when I immediately after writing about uh, writing it, I'm just filled with criticism and loathing. You know, it's like you know because it's this it always can be so much better. But now that I've had a little bit of distance, I'm like, oh, this is not too bad. So <laughs> thank you, lovely intro. And for you, our audience, so the book was published in 2016. I have a copy up for grabs, and I'm so happy because Dr. Jason Fox does a magnificent job of being your Sherpa on a quest. I absolutely loved the book. I ate it up and I selected a pin that it often goes with each show. Today's pin is a backpack for the quest, but it says something very meaningful that is actually at the heart of the show, Jason, and also at the heart of this book. It says, do more than exist. And you had your own little pin story. Yeah, yeah. When we launched the book, um, we had a limited run of hardcover copies that um, my wife illustrated. Um, she's the illustrator of the book as well. And uh, we had hand-drawn illustrations. And she also made special pins that we sent out to some of the early um, pre-orders that we got. So uh, we might have still have some around. And if I can find one, I'll send you out. There's a wizard hat pin, a fox pin, and uh, a few other things. So I'll figure out how to get an, into the into the post to and I was delighted I told you about the pins. I often don't even refer to it, but uh, it just shows you we're on the same same frequency, man, same same vibration. Pins are where it's at. I, <laughs> I love it, yeah. The world of pins, once you get into it, you start finding yourself on Etsy and you're looking at all these like amazing pin designs. It's like, yeah, I'm with you. Oh, man, I've, I've been there. I've wasted many, <laughs> many hours that I should be on a meaningful quest. That's great. Back to the book. So you, you start the book by exploring default thinking, the curse of efficiency and the delusion of progress. You also review the default growth arc of an enterprise and discover how great businesses can one day wake up and discover they're no longer relevant. Maybe let's start with, as you do in the book, the idea of constructive discontent. Yeah, constructive discontent. I really like the framing. Um, uh, I did a PhD in motivation and behavior change, and it, and it came up in a, uh, an academic paper. I can't remember the original authors, but the, the coinage is, is, is beautiful. Uh, um, constructive discontent. It's, um, I, think, I think there's a pattern here with any 
approach to leadership, motivation, behavior change, or even just setting up the premise for a book. Um, in most in business speak, it's either you've got a burning platform as it, where shit's got to change, or you've got a burning aspiration. And the issue is if you don't have either a burning platform or a burning aspiration, the risk is that you're coasting along and you get stagnation, you get complacency, you get this kind of situation where people are busy, they're being productive, boxes are being ticked, you're making incremental improvements within existing paradigms, you look at your performance compared to last year and everything seems fine and you don't realise that you're busily working yourself to a space where you may wake up up to find you're no longer relevant. Um, and that is, that's probably a, you know, that's kind of what I'd call the delusion of progress where people spend so much time busily working themselves to, towards irrelevance. Um, meaningful progress is a different story, but this constructive discontent, none of that stuff, like I've, I've learned all this stuff. You, you, I mean, it's this classic sales <laughs> strategy, right? Um, no one's really interested in the solution until they realize how much pain they're in and the implications of not doing anything and the implications of choosing to not choose to do anything. So constructive discontent is a, a useful framing. And so I guess, I guess the start of the book, and I guess what I want all people to realize is that, you know, if you're feeling frustrated about something, chances are there is a better way. And the more that we can dial up that sense of frustration and channel it in a constructive way, I mean, it's fine to, I mean, many people are very good at being discontent. Constructive discontent is, is where it's at. It's okay to be content to, um, I once experienced about six consecutive seconds of happiness and that was the thing. <laughs> but if we're content for too long, that just leads to comfort and complacency. And so, it reminds me, there's this guy um, I know who works at a large software company. His internal title is the chief agitator. Like he just goes to teams that seem a little too settled and stirs things up, um, you know, just to see what, what emerges. And I, I find that's a useful kind of constructive discontent. So, yeah, the book starts with constructive discontent. It's a useful frame. I love that. It reminded me of George Bernard Shaw has a quote that all progress starts with the unreasonable man or woman. So this idea that if you yeah, yeah, if yeah. you lean into that like cuz i often find this and i and I, and i say it on the show is that often leadership in an organization is so focused on today and the next quarter of the result that when somebody comes along and they're a, a gainsayer they get framed and they get mm. labeled as a naysayer and then actually they don't they're they're usually on death row they're usually on the green mile in some way either internally themselves or the organization does that to them because they're like going i don't want to know and stop agitating change is threatening and and this comes back to the default thinking right um we all have our defaults they're the options we choose automatically in the absence of viable alternatives um and most of us live and learn and grow via pattern recognition. So we start to form defaults. They're, they're the basis of our ontological disposition towards life. It's how we make meaning. And it makes sense. Like we want to have your defaults and they, in business, you want defaults at least 80% of the time. It's, it's, it's good. You know, if you're going to hire someone, chances are you've hired them before. So you've got some templates or some policies, rules, systems, procedures, and default ways of doing things. Uh, my worry, though, is many organizations have become cursed with efficiency. And so they're kind of sh just engulfed by default thinking. And, and if you think about if someone, if someone is a gainsayer, if someone has some ideas that things could be different or things could be better, that's all a threat to the default ways of doing things because our defaults are quick, they're familiar, 
um, they're minimal cognitive burden. And the fact is we're all so busy nowadays, or at least many people claim, feel that they are. And when you're busy, you're time poor. And we're having so much screen time at the moment. And with the geographical distribution of many companies, you know, it's the hours that we're making contact with uh, teammates uh, all across um, all across the, the day. And this results into, a, like, a, I guess, a psychophysiologically low state. And so, therefore, people become a little bit more selfish and self-centered and myopic and kind of more inclined to protect rather than collaborate, to productively tick boxes as, as opposed to explore what's beyond the boxes. And and that's, that's at the heart of this curse of efficiency that I mentioned. And I think day to day, you know, it always re- resonates. People recognize it, but, you know, we really need to dial up this constructive discontent because the way we're working, uh, to quote, I'm sure someone said this, the way we're working isn't working. It just isn't working. You dig here a little bit deeper. And this obviously is why, because you've done this PhD in workplace motivation and your previous book, The Game Changer as well, which comes out here, like you've built upon that work, but you dig a bit deeper at the fall thinking, you go into the idea of patterns, templates, systems, norms, and precedents. Maybe let's give a a top line if you can remember all of those on each of those, because I think actually just even being aware of those makes people spot them during the day. And I think that's the first place to start. Yeah, yeah. Patterns, systems, norms, defaults, templates, like these are these are all different kind of um, I guess cognitive frames, and this is really tricky. I mean, my my the game changer was actually a lot more popular of a book than How to Lead a Quest. Wow! But I, but I love How to Lead a Quest so much more. Um, and <laughs> this well, same is here, say, by the way. Thank you, thank you. Same um, here. This is going to sound Loved incredibly it. arrogant. What I'm going to say, I'm going to sound like a royal prick. Um, the difference is. I think a lot of the How to Lead a Quest requires uh, metacognition. So you have to be able to think about what you're thinking about. You have to kind of have a metasystemic perspective, which means that you need to be able to lift yourself outside of the systems that you work within. Whereas the game changer was more for managers of teams working within the system to optimize within. And I just, I think, I mean, I think honestly, I don't think everyone, I don't think everyone can do that very easily. Um, some of us, you know, it does come a little bit more uh, naturally, but others, it just, it starts to get into a domain that's, it's tricky for folks to wrap their head around. So, but when when it clicks, when you become construct aware, when you start to see patterns, when you start to see the systems, the defaults, the, the, the templates, the rules, the operating system of the way we work, it's kind of akin to seeing the matrix. You kind of see that it's like when you realize that uh, money isn't real, but it is. It's kind of like it's got this both and paradoxical quality. Money itself is an intersubjective meme, a, a unit uh, like a like it's, it's a symbol of trust and and stuff that's kind of based upon multiple people believing in it, and it's very very strong, and so therefore it's rarefied and you know uh, it's 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 more real than uh, other things. And yet still, it's it's of a I'm going on a massive tangent here. I guess what I'm saying here good is... Good man, good. On a quest. Well, yeah, I guess what we're, <laughs> Cognitive we're quest. Is, there's a lot of stuff that just has existed in enterprises that 
maybe emerged in a in an executive meeting 10 years ago uh, and then it became enshrined in policy and then it became embedded into default patterns and behaviors and then became part of the training manual as people were inducted and the original leaders have since left and then it's just the way that we do things and for many people they just stop seeing it and i mean this is related to why it's such a golden window before you become inoculated into a new enterprise uh, ecosystem, when a new recruiter or a new leader comes to a new um, organization, the stuff that they see and notice, all the naive questions they ask, why do we do this? Why is it like that? That is gold because that helps to shine a light on the stuff that people aren't seeing anymore. All the patterns, the systems, the templates, the defaults that you know the busy executives are just blind to because of their day-to-day demands. I love that, man. Have you ever heard of the, the, the zero story? Have you ever heard that story? No, no. What's okay, this? well, oh, I'll, this? I'll share oh, this with you. Oh, is it like not seeing, like not, yeah, tell me, this is mathematics, right? No, 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 it's oh. it's actually, um, so so very quickly, and uh, I'm just going to join you then this rabbit hole uh, that that we've, we've yeah. gone down. So, um, so basically, it's, it's about that, you know, questioning things. So a consultant, uh, Jason Fox, and Aidan McCullen comes into an organization, and they notice that the organization have this strange ritual that they just go through. And what it was, was every day, what there's a, team, a daily report. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Having a ritual, but yeah. it's the wrong one. And we'll come back to rituals at the end of the show. But the idea was that at the end of every day, they'd, they'd submit a report and the top right, there was the, the, the figure zero. So zero was written. And there a consultant comes along and he goes, what's the zero bit? And they go, oh, I don't know, we, we've always done that. And he goes digging and uh, goes looking through and it's in it's in the UK goes digging through old papers get, ends up in a file room, kind of like that ad. Do you remember the old Carlsberg complaint ads like there's never anything happening in there covered in dust finds this box of files, goes through it and finds the original report. And the original report on the top right had said, number of bomb attacks today, zero. And somebody just kept writing this. And, and uh, in time, the writing faded away, but the zero stayed. And they just kept mm. the ritual going. And I, and I use it as this kind of idea that that's what happens in organizations on a wide scale, but we don't see them anymore, because they're just what we've always done. I'm sure you've loads of stories of that type of thing. I do. And it gets to the point where I'm realizing it's actually um, it's a little bit dangerous and not very good for business uh, for some of the things that I'm pointing out because the fundamental issues with a lot of the operating systems of enterprises is that it propped up via the incentives of the executives that keep keep it all flowing. It's it's a really tricky bind um, and it takes a very special person who's worked their way into a position of influence and authority that recognizes that the system itself needs to change and that is freaking hard. Uh, let alone then bringing in externals like you or I to help in that process. Like that, that is a very rare person. And even then, the quest to transition or literally transform an organization, like this whole transformation buzzword, like for many, many enterprises, it's this guy, I mean, the last, last five years has been transformation, digital transformation. I mean, <laughs> COVID's done a better job of digital transformation than many CTOs and CIOs. But anyway, <laughs> um, the, the, the thing is, um, transformation is the superposition between creativity and destruction. 
And what happens in most organizations is they're good at saying yes to new things, flavor of the month, let's do this, let's add this, and webinar here and there. But when it comes to destroying things that are no longer serving them, that's where it gets really, really tricky. And that's where many large enterprises are in such a bind. And so everything becomes a quagmire and it takes so much effort to do anything. And it's, you know, I just, I think a lot of, you know, we need to set the torch to a lot of things that have served us well in the past, but aren't serving us for where we need to go. Yeah. And, and you dedicate time to that at the end of the book as well, like, oh, well, if you're going to do this, if you find these alternatives, you're going to have to create space for them, because you often don't have time for them. So time to pull out the torch and start setting things alight. But I wanted to get into something because you mentioned there about, you know, the changes we've witnessed over the last five years or so, we've certainly witnessed change over the last two years. And one of those places in, is in workplace. And you hear a lot about and, and you see this a lot when you email people, there's a lot of people out of office on a Friday or a Monday, and they're either working a three or four day work week now. And in some cases, if they haven't been furloughed, or hopefully they haven't been let go in their jobs, it's a case that they actually are on four days now, and they're getting paid for five. And I often think that a better way or maybe an alternative way would be to use that fifth day for learning or for examining your defaults or for some way to look towards the future of the organization. And I say that to say, I pulled a quote from the book, because you say the goal is that we spend a good 20% of our engaged in more of our time engaged in more meaningful and thoughtful work. We'd reflect upon our assumptions and decisions we make, we'd feed our hunches and nurture the exploration of new possibilities and options. Now we see this time and time again with the literature, some people like Alex Osterwalder, a friend of the show will say up to 40% of your time should be spent there. But 20% is a day a week. And that's a lot of people, you know, it's hard enough to get people in a room to do a workshop with them at all for one day a year, let alone one day a week. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm the 20% things become a little bit too popularized, I think, um, nowadays that it's, it's almost become its own default in some ways. You say the 20% and in my experience, people are like, oh yeah, the Google 20% thing or something. They kind of, they, they quickly collapse it into, oh, it means this. I like the, that pushback from Alex um, about it could be 40%. I think the, 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 key, the thing is, uh, I've asked this, I ask this question a lot. I don't think many, in my experience, I don't think many senior leaders are reading books I don't think they're reading science fiction. I don't think they're having long conversations, uh, you know, just exploring possibilities with friends. I don't think they're going for long walks. I don't think they're journaling and reflecting. I think they're they're burning themselves out. They're, you know, <laughs> this is the thing. When change is, you know, all the ambiguity that we're moving into, it's absolutely apprehensive. Like it, very few people have the negative capability to thrive in ambiguity, complexity, paradox and doubt. And so what happens then is they'll default to the things that provide a rich sense of progress. And this is where you get leaders go to manager mode where they start meddling in stuff that probably isn't what they what they should be doing. That's not, you know, it's them, it's not them, you know, being visionary, crafting the strategy, moving the organization towards uh, future relevance, uh, and, you know, keeping the, the team, it's, it's instead, it's them, you know, jumping into email and checking it. And I, I don't think that's as helpful. And so my, my provocation here is that we need to have, so, 
we need to have some sort of return where there is space for emergence. Um, if I was to write how to lead a quest again, I would probably dedicate a large chunk at the start towards cultivating seniors, this notion of collective genius, which I think Kevin Kelly coined a while ago. The sense of, you know, having the time and space and the environment where you can actually think and draft and you can build on ideas and nurture divergent and emergent thinking. And, and most organizations just simply don't have that. Um, yeah, so, uh, I mean, one of the most um, phenomenal books for me that I read a couple of years ago is a book called How to Do Nothing by Jenny oh. O'Dell, which is- um, Who's it by? Resisting, Jenny O'Dell. Jenny, um, okay. Stick it down in the yeah, list. <laughs> resistance in the, it, it, yeah, resistance in the, in the attention economy. It's really, really hard and leaders are, are spread thin. and. Yeah, the quests aren't even possible. It's just a cute phrase if, if someone's just going to be, oh, yeah, let's do a quest, and, you know, they dedicate all of 20 minutes a week to it. It's just <laughs> like that. So, so, yeah, I mean, that's been my, my lesson. There's been a few that have taken it on board, but, you know, that then requires the organization to be in a fairly healthy state with the at least some profit margin or at least some forward-thinking vision to dedicate time and space for it. But a lot of large organizations are kind of scrambling for very small margins and having to cut costs. And, you know, it's a, that's a tricky space for many folks to be in. I, and I get it, man. I, I, like, I've worked in those organizations and, and I see nobody gives you a pat on the back for it, it's more likely to be a kick in the backside for exploring and for making, you know, guesses of what the future might be, you know, no matter how well you've, you've examined those and how many alternatives you've come up with in order to back one, nobody's going well done, they're more likely to go well, you wasted X amount of money, you know, and um, I have a practice, one of my weekly rituals myself is to write a weekly article and I started I was inspired by yours. And I, I started thinking about how, you know, if, if a kid, right, so a kid, you, you, you want your kid to unpack the dishwasher or learn how to clean up their spilled milk, right. And um, I was thinking about right, so your kid spills milk. And that's fine. And you're kind of going, Okay, well, it's the weekend. I'll show Okay, so what you do is you clean the milk, but then you need to wash the counter. So there's no smell, whatever, right. So you take the time. But now, the kid spills the milk when you're on the way out the door to an important meeting, or you're running up to do a zoom call to do a meeting upstairs. And your reaction is totally different. So you have this outcome bias. And I was like, on oh, that's what happens in organizations, particularly because the leadership are under so much pressure, they have so little time, maybe they're already on a burning platform. And that's the equivalent of I'm actually okay with you spilling milk in the pro in the pursuit of learning or new new experiments, but not when it's in this context of me being in a massive rush. And that's a huge problem. <laughs> it, it, it compounds, um, you know, because leadership exists in a, you know, a highly political environment. So there's all sorts of power dynamics. It's like just like what we see with social media, there's not really as much room for contemplation or nuance or taking the time to understand different perspectives, because we're all so busy. And this is coupled with um, an obscene metric obsession, like just people are fixated upon numbers and anything that can be collapsed into something that's measurable, what gets measured is what gets done. It just, it just blinkers our focus. And so 
And the thing about numbers and measuring against numbers, you, you have to kind of predetermine what the outcome is before you even explored. And then you've got this kind of arbitrary benchmark that you established before you had the wisdom of whatever you gain on a quest or through the exploration that you have to measure yourself against. Where I've seen it work well is where teams have the maturity enough to integrate qualitative uh, analysis and reflection, which is, it's still, uh, in my perspective, very rigorous. It allows a, a much um, richer information source of, of meaning making and sense making. Uh, and it complements the quantitative data quite nicely and can address some of the gaps that may be in there. So where you get, you know, you get attuned to the vibes and what's emerging and what, what people are sensing that's out there. And, and you know, that's, that's kind of where the elements of immense strategic uh, advantage and possibility and risk mitigation emerges from is those that are attuned and have the space to kind of be able to sense make, you know, and then share and make meaning with the, with the folks around them. Um, yeah, but yeah, we, you and I see this, right? This innovation thing, it's, it's like, it's rife with buzzwords and all sorts of folks promising quick fixes. And they've got this, you know, out of a box, you know, five-step linear plan to get your things innovative. And, uh, you know, if you've, if for anyone that's been in the game longer than a few years, you just, you just like, you see, it, it, it takes, it's not that easy. If it were that easy, people would be doing it. Yeah. You know, so. And, and it's, yeah. it's, it's rife with uh, all types of, of monsters, which we'll talk about in a second, when I introduce the Kraken of Doom. And by the way, I love your language throughout the book. I love the language on your website. I, it's, it's clear that you love language, you love words, and you mentioned that throughout the book. But I wanted to, to zone in on something that you said there, because here's here's a, a scenario, and I've been here. New idea, you've done your research, you go, there's something in this. CFO comes along, and, and the CFO is not the Kraken of Doom, by the way. <laughs> they often are. There's some type of monster, but not often. But the CFO goes, okay, when will this be profitable? And you're like, going, and going uh, I don't know, maybe 18 months, maybe 24, and they're like, that's not good enough. It needs to be 12. And you're kind of going, and, you, and just to get a yes, you'll go, sure. And you'll go, I'll deal with that mm -hmm. problem when it comes. But then 12 months later, as you say, you've learned a lot. You're kind of going, I need, uh, w it's not exactly what we thought it would be, but we've got something way better. I need more time. I need more, I need more people. I need more energy and resources. And uh, the, the CFO then says to the CEO, uh, Aiden's lost it. I don't know if if he's if he's on target anymore. He's costing us money. We're bonused on EBITDA. We're bonused on on that. Why would we have an Aiden in the company? Oh yeah, good call. Then all of a sudden you start looking out for errors by an Aiden in the company or that type of person, and that person's on death row. You know, and and you see it time and time and time again. And these great people who are game changers in their organization are on death row and often leave themselves because they're starved of resource and energy and <laughs> yeah, support totally, or, yeah. or else they just yeah. are they're fired. Yeah, and a new flavor of the month comes in with a kind of new new buzzword packaging that's still the same shitty concept that like it just seems attractive but different. Um, I have noticed that like familiarity breeds contempt and there is there is certainly something to be said around ebbs and flows to engagement and involvement. And yeah, the whole CFO, you know, I think it, I mean, it, it's critical to, to get skeptical folks on side early and, and in a way that's intelligent. And 
as much as it's been memed up and, you know, taken out of proportion, as all good things are in this industry, I, I do think Eric, as a lean startup, uh, minimum viable product approach ha- holds a lot of ground, you know, with, you know, so it might not be profitable in a big way, but yeah, we can gain some momentum and insight doing some, um, you know, safe to fail experiments and, and gain an insight into some domain. I mean, Here's the thing, though, you don't want to commit to a particular experiment in a particular track before actually exploring what the viable alternative options might be. And so with the quest thing, it takes a, a what, what I call a quest augmented strategy, takes a, a different level of maturity of, of it's it's not or, or already jumping to a solution that someone else has uh, researched and found. It's doing some of the work that others may not have done, even contemplated yet. Uh, and as you say, including people on that quest, so they become more embedded in it, they give their diverse opinions, their neurodiversity comes into play. All those things are so important. Yeah. I wanted to come back to some of the the mental models that you offer throughout the book, because one of them, you know, one of the ones many people on the show will be familiar with are the S curves of growth throughout an organization. But you actually introduce a lovely one, which is the rainbow of growth and despair. And here you say just to encapsulate everything we've been saying here, we likely find an embedded fixation upon near term KPIs and shareholder returns, there is no sense of greater purpose, people fixate upon ever shrinking margins and seek greater efficiencies. Then you share some of the common challenges. So this is what you do next. You share some of the common challenges within organizations. One, a distinct lack of ownership exists. Two, vision is blinkered and myopic. Three, failure, as we said, like the spilled milk (laughs) carries the stigma. Friction seems to exist for every action and everybody is busy. And at the other side of the rainbow of growth and then despair, lies the inevitable creature, the Kraken of doom. I'd love if you to bring us on this, unpack those mental models, the rainbow, and then the Kraken. Yes, the rainbow. I mean, here's the thing I, I just, where possible, let's language it up. Let's make this distinct and memorable. And just because it's a business book doesn't mean we can't you know, engage our imaginations. So an arc, the default arc of enterprise growth, the rainbow of growth and despair, like it all starts at the startup phase, or something like that, where new thinking is the most valuable commodity. If this new thinking meets a market need, one can expect things will grow. Very often it doesn't, so nothing happens. Sometimes it's very hard to scale a small team into a larger team, so nothing happens. But say it does, you enter this growth phase. An interesting thing happens between growth and maturity. This is where curiosity begins to die. Because at this point in time, you have a raft of evidence that suggests that what you're currently doing is working. So why would you do anything differently? You have policies, rules, systems, templates, default ways of doing things. Uh, and, you know, it's like, why, why are you reading a book or why are you going off to that conference not related to this industry? We've got shit to do. Let's get back to work. And so people become busier and become cursed with efficiency and we get all those issues that we we're saying before. And then there comes a time where one day people begin to realize, oh, shit, uh, we have missed a very important opportunity in the last few years, and we're on a track to be not relevant at all. And our options are pretty slim. We can maybe buy a license to a product that someone else has done. We could maybe, uh, you know, I guess we might get bought out by someone who's, it's just like, it starts to dwindle. And that's where we find ourselves in the inevitable kraken of doom, which feeds upon the sweet nectar (laughs) of your impending irrelevance. 
Um, and no one sets out to become irrelevant, but many well-intended leaders and teams find themselves there when they become too busy for meaningful progress. And this, this notion of being too busy for meaningful progress is, drives me nuts, but it's, it's just what I see everywhere. The Kraken of Doom is my metaphor for disruption. Um, it's, um, you know, the Kraken, it's, it's kind of hidden. You don't see it. It exists in liquid, which is fluid, so therefore not fixed. You can't really point to it. And, uh, yeah, once it gets its tentacles around your ship, um, it's pretty hard to escape getting pulled under. So, yeah, that's 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 the mental model there. <laughs> Beautiful. I, I was... Uh... What I was mentioned to you before we came on that I was trying to choose a pin and I have a pin of a rainbow, but it's like it's a happy story rainbow. There's very few, yeah. I'm sure, pins out there where you're like, there's a kraken at the end <laughs> or some type yeah, of monster. Yeah, that's right. Not a pot of gold, a kraken. <laughs> well, I mean, so the point, of, the point of that model there is you can jump onto new arcs at any point in time. You don't have to kind of follow it all the way through to the kraken. Just get onto a new rainbow. But what does that mean? It means we need to cultivate time, space, and the environment where new thinking can flourish. And that's that's the biggest threat to organizations as I see it at the moment. There just isn't time to think. Leaders are so busy. And even if there is time to think, the environments are so competitive, uh, so metric driven, so myopic that any new thinking kind of struggles to emerge. But you know, if we zoom back even further, outside of the context of an organization, it's fine because innovation is emerging in all sorts of places. Like there are stuff, there's things happening in Web3 with blockchain and decentralized anonymous teams that are going to completely eat and consume the traditional world, um, which is very, very fascinating to be witnessing at the moment. But that's probably a story for another time. There's still hope for organizations who quest. So <laughs> maybe we rally back to that. So yeah, let's come back to the word quest itself, because I mentioned your love of language that comes through throughout the book, and indeed in talking to you here. And we've kind of covered the constructive discontent so far the the why why would you bother going on a quest in the first time but then part two and by the way there's part there's six parts to the book part two we're only in part two by the way <laughs> is yeah. a, okay. about the the what the, so this is like why why the quest why a quest augmented strategy and i and i'd love here because we we think of the word quest means voyage or a journey, but it actually has a, a very meaningful reason you chose that word. And I'll just tee you up here because you say, by seeking to reduce uncertainty instead of questing with it, we end up reducing the very things that allow us to pioneer unlock and unlock game changing strategic innovation, creativity, serendipity, imagination, diversity, experimentation, and learning. I absolutely love that line. I pulled that one out. But perhaps you'll tell us what, why Quest, why you chose that word. I mean, there's a part of me, the philosopher and poet and artist that just loves the mythology of Quest and, and what, it, what it means. Every question literally begins with a quest. And we live in a world that seeks answers, quick fixes, ready answers. They, they you know, we tend to favor high conviction. So people that are literally convicts to their beliefs, um, and I would I would rather that we lean into uh, uncertainty, that we cultivate a love for the generative ambiguity, for what might be possible beyond the known. Um, and so, I mean, Quest has a, a clinical definition as well as um, the search for uh, viable alternative options that um, meet cognitive criteria. 
And that pairs very well with this default thinking that we we're talking about before. Our defaults are the options we choose automatically in the absence of viable alternatives. So if we want to go beyond the default, we need to find viable alternative options. The quest is a search for viable alternative options beyond the default. And so if we are questing, like we start off on a quest, we don't know what the goal is. I mean, so much as business is, is goal-driven. It's, it's like, what do you want to achieve? And what's your smart goal for it? And how are we going to measure it? You kind of, you, you whereas, you know, I guess in some ways you could think of a much of business is driven via a mission-oriented mindset. Um, you get Olympian speakers or military speakers come in and they'll say, you know, we, we, we had a clear goal and we just focused on that goal and every day we knew exactly the target that we wanted to hit and we trained hard. And the thing about, I mean, you know, Olympians are amazing at what they do and the Olympic metaphors work tremendously well in fixed environments because that's what the Olympics are though. There's like, it's the environment, there's adjudicators, there's all the things to make it exactly the same. Four or five years or however spaced out the Olympics are, the, the conditions are exactly the same or as much as we can. Life is not like that. Business is not like that. So while goals work great and formulaic for formulaic work with predictable outcomes, um, they're not so good for complex environments, ambiguity, change. And so therefore, a quest disposition, instead of working towards a clear promise, we work from a clear premise. We have an understanding that our defaults aren't necessarily serving us, um, you know, and we're, we're aware that choosing to not choose to do anything about it is a choice. And that has implications. We're not comfortable with those implications. We have enough constructive discontent to justify questing. And then we search. We search, and, and part of that process of searching is cultivating a quiver of options, like a like a like if you're if you're a surfer or uh, I don't know what the equivalent board riding thing in, in your land is, like snowboarding or whatever it is. We have we have we're surfing. We've surfing in Ireland actually, so surfing's quite yeah great yeah, okay growing amazing up. cool. Yeah. So 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 the idea is like if you're a surfer. Um, and if you have at least three boards, one could say you have a quiver of boards, which means that you can look at the surf conditions and choose the right board appropriate to the conditions. And what we want to do in business is have a quiver of options. We want to have a healthy, dynamic, generative quiver of options. So these are strategic initiatives we might choose to invest in should the conditions manifest. Most, of course, don't have time to think, let alone cultivate a quiver of options. And so therefore, when change happens, they're completely unprepared for it and um, they get incredibly disrupted and, <laughs> and then wake up to find they're no longer relevant. But um, this process of questing, it's, it's not let's get in an external consultant with the answers to tell us what to do. It's not let's just scan the zeitgeist for what ideas are hot right now and do that. Um, it's literally doing the research, doing the stuff yourself, like actually sensing into the space. Sure, you might bring external thinkers in to stimulate good thinking. Um, but, uh, you know, this is there's a point that I'm making here is that I, I find that because large organizations are so busy and everyone's busy and the leaders are busy, there's this dependency on bringing in consulting firms to do the thinking for them. Now, when you consult with consulting firms, they have the same issue internally themselves. They're so busy, their business model works on like getting things, you know, consultants farmed out there. And so you have this whole interconnected web of these people that are all too busy to think. <laughs> and the, the key thing is, well, we can cultivate a space to think, you know, we can actually try to 
about sorry I'm, I'm getting carried away please here. there's an important thing you're here. on a quest man like, well this is that like leaders if you're going to do this you actually need to value it you need to actually pay people well as well like you can't is this i i feel like there's this thing with like we're in this phase at the moment where resilience is like one of the key terms like um organizations are wanting to their people to be resilient and i had a brief the other day well about a month ago i was like oh our people are really overworked at the moment and many are burning out um can you do a resilience webinar for <laughs> and it's just that'll help it's not it's not <laughs> it's not going to cut it like there's there's we need to actually invest in this stuff for it to work and if we do and if we actually start quest the the quality of the intelligence that can be generated within an organization or a team and the the kind of the significance of the decisions that are made in the, in terms of meaningful progress it you just can't compare it um so yeah that's that's I love it man long story short that's questing yeah, yeah. I love it and uh, you know the you reminded me there I worked with a team and it was a, it was a finance team. So the, the finance team came up with a way that saved them a massive day a week. So they came up with a new process that saved them and the entire organization a day a week, right? You know what they got rewarded with? More work. <laughs> so it was like, we've, we've, yeah. we've freed up yeah. this kind of energy and this energy and money for the organization is like, great, now you can do this. It wasn't like now you can explore and quest and find other ways you can do totally. it and find efficiencies. Yep. And, and uh, that's exactly back to your point. Let, let's keep going with um, the, the book because wh why I keep coming back to the to language is the power of language. And it's funny, the language you used at the start I I went into um, some of the uh, mental models I had existing, such as I, I loved uh, classical studies when I was in school. I, I did it even though I, I didn't have the capacity to actually get tested for it, so I couldn't take the subject. But I actually went to the classes and read the Odyssey, etc. So I went into that mindset, and then I added in Clash of the Titans, those movies I saw growing up, and I kind of that's the lens through which I read the book. But one of the re and I just thought about the power of language to do that and just, you know, peppering the book with those languages with the language you used and then the images as well done by you and Kim were so powerful. But one of the ones that comes up time and time again, and I shared this with a group of change makers that I know, and it resonated so so strongly was I've read it and, and it's clear you've read it Joseph Campbell's work and the idea of the, the hero with a thousand faces. And here you introduce the idea of the change maker as a hero, the monomyth that exists. So the structure is so common throughout so many quests that change makers are on. I'd love if you'd share this and unpack this because this will resonate so strongly with some of our listeners. Yeah, uh, so Joseph Campbell's The Monomyth. Again, it's, it's one of those things that after I, I, I wrote it, there's other structures as well that are equally compelling. Um, so just as an aside, the narrative or mythological structure of many of um, Studio Ghibli's films, uh, Japanese animation studio, is, is really quite wonderful. It's uh, often female protagonists. There, there's no kind of clear resolution, but there's a clear... It's, it's a different and equally valid um, story approach. But the monomyth is something that many of us are familiar with. And... The basic premise, I'm going to do a crude, crude summary, is the protagonist is in the 
ordinary world surrounded by ordinary people doing ordinary things as a call to adventure they ignore the call to adventure things change in the ordinary world um think of frodo and you know stuff going on with the ring and stuff like that um a, a wizard or a catalyst appears and the serve as a call to adventure this time it is taken up um and the hero um uh, unfortunately, most tales, it's a boy with a sword, but, um, you know, we can actually expand that to be much more inclusive nowadays. The hero must conquer um, the dragon, um, which is an external uh, force, but, uh, but ultimately then needs to pass the second or second threshold, which is like the demon, which is an inner journey of themselves. And then the third threshold, which then ultimately sees them return back to the ordinary world, but they are changed. And partly this process of going on a quest and the times that I have done this with organizations that have done this very well, which is usually an investment of at least 18 months and time and a mix of a core team and, you know, that's freshed up with um, secondments. You have this situation where people start, but then by the time they've actually gone back to their normal roles, they're all changed. They have a different perspective. They have newfound savvy and connections that they didn't have before. Like there's these quests, this quests aren't linear. They're not easy and they have to very often, I mean, most quests are actually terrible and arduous. Like it's just, you wouldn't necessarily wish a quest upon someone um, based upon most of the stories and myths, but they are transformative. And so, yeah, Joseph Campbell's work is phenomenal. If you, I mean, you know, once you start getting into mythology, all this stuff is just incredible. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of um, Hermes or Mercury, um, the trickster god of messages and transitions and how that shows up in, in different, and the different archetypes. So archetypes are kind of character patterns and how they s turn up in stories. And then the archetypal roles that we can play. These are fun. The, the, there's a danger sometimes when we rarefy them and make them too much of a thing. But if we kind of keep them in this kind of, playful dynamic they can be super generative and inclusive and offer new ways or new lenses uh new ways of seeing things that we might otherwise not be able to see so i want to mirror that to real life uh, example so real life modern day life call it that modern day quest or modern day hero so um an executive goes to a conf a conference somebody says something at a conference she she sees the world differently then then she starts to see evidence for this maybe new competitor coming up etc then goes back to the organization starts to tell a few people there's some action that's like let's get together let's talk about this they come together they have a strategic meeting she goes on a quest to try and get to the ceo and get a near you know get get an audience and oftentimes that's the quest you and then you get the audience the ceo you know you might get the boardroom you present you you're like you got 10 minutes kid right so you sit down you would just slide you you try and tell your story and oftentimes you know it reminds me of the movies where you get to what you think is a safe haven and actually that's the cracking of doom the ceo <laughs> so the ceo pulls out a saber and lops off your head and you're going going god damn it i thought i'd made it to the top so it's like I call these Disney Disney queue uh, effects where you think you're at the top of the Disneyland queue and then it's like, oh, no, no, there's a corner and it goes all the way around again. Yeah. And you're you're right. It's snakes and ladders, man, you know, and uh, this unfortunately is, is what happens. So many change makers and organizations. I'm sure you've seen this. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, this is really, it's, it's nice to frame it in the real world. So. 
I would say this person who is on a quest, the thing is in the, the hero's journey, she's probably ignored that like it's this conference that's actually the call to adventure. It's, it might be the fourth or fifth time that she's seen the idea. And all the other times she's thought, ah, oh, this is rubbish or I shouldn't. And this is this is where we've got to get attuned to inklings and hunches, where we actually have this intuitive sense that I think this is important. And then we get busy and distracted and then nothing happens. And then you see it again. I think this is really important. And then, you know, same thing happens. But then say there's a conference and something happens. It's a call to adventure. She's on. She goes there. She tries to rally it up. I, I don't know. I, I like there's this format in video games where you're this little character and you go up and you, you go to the first boss and you just get beaten hugely like and then you wake up in this other land and that boss that like absolutely tranced you i'm not talking boss in terms of um leadership i'm talking about yeah video game, game boss yeah it's still there right um but then the real quest begins because you realize of course it's not going to work in a 10 minute meeting out of the blue because that's the first time they've heard of the idea and they're busy too. So then you start to having to get clever. How do we actually create a little bit of a conspiracy? How can I win over other folks? How can we start to garner some evidence for this? How can we build some case or momentum for this? And the reality is the life of a change maker is often lonely and <laughs> very unrewarding and takes a long time to be an internal change agent. But the ones that do it well, usually rally folks together like and usually what it looks like is a few folks sticking around for um you know meeting up early for coffee or something or sticking around a little bit to just share and compare notes um and through that through that kind of collaborative cultivation of seniors some interesting things can emerge and it's quite possible that executives can actually rally meaningful change um it just it just doesn't happen in a straight line <laughs> you know what came to mind? You know that you know that scene, the iconic scene from Jerry Maguire. It's like, who's with me? And he grabs the goldfish. <laughs> and then, and yeah, then she, yeah. she eventually, you know, one person comes with him and is like, We're off on our quest. But uh yeah. back back <laughs> to the back to the, the arch the, the the story arc. I uh, we're not gonna get through it all, but I, I found something really, really helpful. And um you say mathematician. George Box once said, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And it's with this humility that you present your own quest augmented strategy, a framework for meaningful progress. I found this really, really helpful. So Jason, let's share that for those who are with us on YouTube, who, who are watching this on YouTube, you will see it. Maybe we'll use some empathy then, Jason, for those people who aren't watching it, because most of our show, most of our audience are actually listeners. So I'm going to share this uh, quest augmented strategy. There we go. That should be up on the screen for everybody to see. Right, so for folks listening, <laughs> it's a bloody quadrant model. <laughs> I mean, every every consultant's got their quadrant model, and I guess I'm no different, but this one's got some flair. So on the vertical axes, we've got thinking and doing, thinking at the top, doing at the bottom. I think that's a false dichotomy. Um, most, a lot of thinking actually happens whilst doing and vice versa, but for the sake of the model, it's useful to separate these things out. Then we have... Uh, on the horizontal axes, uh, on the left-hand side, we have operational. And on the right-hand side, we have pioneering. So when we're talking about operational, we're talking about working with uncertainty. And with pioneering, we're working in a space of uncertainty. So 
the pioneering thing, I think about the distinction between pioneers versus settlers. So pioneers explore the land, think, okay, where, where might be a good place? And the settlers come in what, to lands that's already been explored and, and, you know, start to build buildings and settle down. So on the left-hand side, we have the operational land. This is where strategy has occurred, and, and most folks spend 98% of their time here. Strategy is informed by a combination of default thinking and incrementalism and a bit of bandwagonism. So leaders will scan the zeitgeist for whatever word is buzzword is hot and just tack it on to their existing default modus operandi. And then you get a kind of kind of progress that happens. I'm not sure if it's meaningful progress, but there's a progress that happens. On the other side, you have options and experiments. And this is all on a I guess a distinction between a mission orientated thing, which is missions are great, missions working towards a clear promise where you have narrowed focus, usually within tight time parameters. And then you have quests on the other side, which are much more open, where you are working from a clear premise and you don't necessarily have tight parameters. You have a more qualitative bias than quantitative. And at the top right of this quadrant model, we have options. This is where we get the quiver of options that I was talking about before. The point of quests is to enrich the uh, quiver of options that we have. We want to expand the possible options that are in our possible uh, the options that are in our possibility space. I'm not talking about necessarily infinitely, you know, considering all possible options. There's a curation to this. We're, we're building a quiver of options because ultimately we're seeing if there are any viable alternative options to the default ways of doing things. The only way we can tell if an option is viable or not is by conducting experiments. So this is where we look at our quiver of options, we monitor the context that we're in, and then we might, oh, I mean, I can give an example from a client that I worked with about five years ago, because this is, I mean, times past, and my, most of my work is on non-disclosure agreements. So it's actually really hard to talk about what most of I do, but, um, but here, there was a client that was realizing that, you know what, flexibility in the workplace is gonna be a thing. The notion that employers own employees' time is, is pretty dated and is likely to change. We want to see if it's possible for our employees to self-regulate and essentially organize scheduling and rostering themselves. And this was a contact center that was exploring that. So they knew when they had peak demand, they knew when they had to have people on board and they wanted to experiment. Is it possible for the team itself to self-organize around this? And so there were, there were a few options within that that were building into this experiment. They conducted an experiment with a small pilot study, seemed to yield results. They then expanded that to a bigger pilot study and then it was integrated into strategic decision making and thus a more meaningful kind of progress was attained. That's the quest augmented strategy model. It's not that linear. I mean, it's all over the place in reality, but it's a useful frame to think about how quests can enrich and enhance the strategic decision making that happens within an enterprise. So I, I love that. I think it's so, so helpful. And thanks for letting me share it there. I back to nonlinear because none of this is linear. And you know, I loved I love what you said about the Olympics. And I was thinking that if you think about the Olympics, it's a set ground, it's an understood, they've actually agreed all the sports that are going to take place. And actually, as a change maker, the quest is usually, hey, I got this, I got this arrow, I got this quiver of new sports <laughs> that have been testing out here. Mm. I think mm. this one could mm. actually work in the Olympics. And that that journey for anybody who's listening, whoever, if there's the chance that somebody's listening who introduced a new sport to the Olympics, I'm sure it's absolutely hell. And uh, I, oh, I, yeah. I, I say hell because you You're introduced skateboarding into the Olympics. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. You definitely are no Pollyanna about 
the approach here. It's non-linear. It's all over the place. It's like introducing a new sport to the Olympics. And it's difficult. And you introduce here the nine layers of hell that we have to get through. <laughs> it's like, this ain't easy. You have to go through hell literally in order to get there. I love this. And we won't go through all nine layers, but perhaps you'll give us a high level view of this. Well, yeah, that, I mean, that particular model uh, was just because I, I speak at a lot of conferences and events. And you, I know you do the same, too. And you start to see there's just the same memes and tropes and things that get repeated. And one of the things I saw a lot was we need to celebrate failure. I even wrote about it in my first book. But I was like, ah, that's a little bit. I mean, it's just starting to get a bit tacky. And there are some kinds of failure that we don't want to celebrate, like 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 immoral actions or systemic negligence like that that's not we don't want to celebrate that so it was useful to kind of have this spectrum of what like a failed experiment yeah maybe there's some good learnings out of that or things like that there's there's a, there's a kind of a spectrum of what failure looks like and so i mean this was more to just mollify what we want people in that are on quest is we want to get them out of binary thinking we don't want them to think in mission mode of success and failure we want to see everything's on a spectrum there's all gradients it's all relative and to realize that if we're working with the best of intent towards meaningful progress there's going to be hiccups along the way and it's not going to be smooth sailing but that's okay um and there are some, of course, failures that we don't want to celebrate. Um, but then there's a lot that's just learning. And it's just how we go through it. That was the intent of that model in the book. I love that model. And and by the way, just for our listeners so much, because I was telling to, to Jason before we came on air, he did such a great job of going so wide, but also keeping you on the journey, the story arc, uh, and making it so enjoyable, it's such an enjoyable read illustrated beautifully as well. But I thought a great way to finish, and it's such an important thing. I mentioned to you about the pins. We talked about that earlier on. The pin is a ritual for me, so it's almost like um, it's almost like putting on my my suit in order to get ready for the show, selecting the pin, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That ritual's kind of become important to me, and you you emphasize the importance of rituals in organizations. It's a huge part of the how for organizations, how do you get there, but also for those individuals who are looking to change their lives in some meaningful way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm just reflecting back on your example of the, uh, I think, finance group that saved folks effectively a day a week. And what happened instead, uh, you know, how was that rewarded? It was just given more work. And this, this, this is the pattern that happens in organizations that anytime you're innovative or clever and you do things in a way that's actually more effective with time, your reward is more work. And so that does either two things. It either encourages people to, I guess, rise to their level of incompetence and just <laughs> do things mediocre or to have um, busy people, uh, to have, sorry, highly effective people burn out because they just get that just attract more and more work. What's missing is the rituals. And I'm, I remember in some of my earlier jobs when I was back when I was working at the university um, or just in hearing stories of other people, it used to be that people would have, you know, these are pre-COVID times I'm talking about, people would have like these rituals where once a week they'd meet for a morning tea and cake could be shared and updates would be shared or they'd have a beer at the end of the week together, you know, knock off early on a Friday or they'd do things, you know, once a month have a game of cricket or whatever, some sort of sport thing. They'll do things that allow time and space to connect, to reflect, to have 
you know, to, so it's not constantly busy and productive all the time. But this this curse of productivity and efficiency that's, that's engulfed us has meant that a lot of these meaningful rituals that in many ways are like canary in the coal mines, these early indicators that something's, what do I mean by this? In your own life, all of us as individuals, we can think about some of the things that we do each day that are really important for us. Like I have a morning journaling ritual that I'm, you know, I'd, I'd like to say I do a lot of the time, but if I think about this year, actually, it's been a little bit, a little bit shaky. It's interesting now I'm just realizing in real time that um, what I usually say is, you know, there are these things like going for a walk in the evening or things that we do that if we stop doing them because we've become too busy, they're, they're early indicators that something's not quite right. This is an important ritual here. Um, like for you with the, the pin and getting, you know, that's a centering ritual that gets you kind of in the mode for the podcast. It's a different way of, of, of being. There's a presencing and a centering but, you know, imagine there's a scenario where your kid spilt milk on the way here, you're running a little bit late, Zoom's done an update and stuff that you haven't had time, a chance to get, you know, that if that was gone, that's an early indicator. Hang on, something's not quite right. Are we in the right space here? Is this, is this right? Um, and so, again, there's thinking about enterprise. There are, you know, conferences, for example, most conferences or most events are just junked up with or bloated with all this content, but really what it is is a chance for people to connect with each other. They've been, they've been working all year. As a ritual, it's vital. Rituals are like sacred routines where we deliberately carve out time against the grain of busyness to progress the things that matter. They're the time that we dedicate to the things that don't necessarily fit in boxes or the things that... Um, you know, that allows space for us to reflect or ask the questions that don't normally get a chance to be asked. And so I, uh, in How to Lead a Quest, I try to encourage people to think about rituals. This links to, you know, time to think, it links to reading um, books, it links to a lot of things. And I just, if, if everyone listening to this right now were to think about their life, think about it through the lens of daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, yearly, decade, if you want, um, what are the rituals that you have in place that really help to ensure you're making meaningful progress? Um, because they're usually the, the last bastions um, against the default thinking and the curse of efficiency that end up consuming us day to day. And if we don't honor our rituals, what happens is we become so busy, we get burnt out, and then we turn to distraction. So we numb ourselves on Netflix or, or other things, and we never really address the things that need to be addressed. So yeah, rituals. I think rituals are super important. Super important. I, I, I thought, firstly, I thought it, it's a great exercise for our audience to do is to examine that, write down the rituals, write what's, what rituals have fallen by the wayside, what ones do they want to put in place for maybe preparing for next year. But also, I thought I, I, a lovely way to maybe final exercise, one that you use with your corporate workshops when you have time is the idea of one word that I love this idea, choose one word ritual. And you mentioned, I, I introduced you as the arch wizard. I, I'm guessing wizard is maybe the ritual at the moment is the word you've chosen at the moment, because I, I thought that was very powerful. And I've peppered that throughout today's show is the idea of the power of language, because language is how we think. And I thought that's such a powerful thing for people to do on a personal level, because 
choosing a word and and living along with that world. And and you told us in the book, you wrote in 2016, the word you chose at the time was pirate. And I just wanted to recommend if you haven't read it, he's a former guest on the show, a guy called Sam, Sam Conniff. And his book is called Be More Pirate. It's absolutely wonderful. It. It's so good. Wonderful, wonderful yeah. book. Yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, Sam, Sam was a former guest in the show. Just maybe a word on this and maybe give our audience an instruction of what to do to embrace this idea. <laughs> okay. All right. So, I mean, wizard was a word for me. It's been integrated. Um, uh, this is currently the year of the hermit. Um which is inspired by the <laughs> for obvious guy. reasons, man. Yeah, well, actually, um, I mean, I I struggled this year for the first year. I've been doing it for about eleven years now, but yeah, hermits, hermits, the thing. I've needed to go more inward than I, ever before. I have a, if you don't mind me doing a slight plug, I have a, a course dedicated to this. Uh, Choose one uh, choose one word.com over 70 video lessons on how to choose one word is not necessarily easy. The short thread of it is that instead of choosing a goal or setting a resolution for yourself, you can do this at any time, by the way, I, I previously did it around my birthday, but I've switched it to April fool's day being the, the Genesis. I know some people that do it on equinoxes or solstices. You can choose whenever you want to embark upon this ritual. The point is, Instead of, instead of setting a goal for yourself, which is has all the issues we talked about beforehand, instead, after much reflection and introspection, where you recognize the patterns that you have in yourself, where you recognize, if you were to think about your life as an autobiography, where every single moment leading up to this moment right now has been written down in this big book, and if you were to look at the last few years, I wonder, what themes do you see? What patterns do you see? And if you were to think about, you know, where you are in the next 12 months, I wonder what themes or, you know, what do you want to see emerge? If you were to give the next 12 months, next 12 chapters, one word to serve almost as a fuzzy contextual beacon, as a, as a guiding, uh, you could call it a, night, a North Star if you want, some, some, one word to cast 12 months into the future to serve as a guiding light so that should you wander off track, and you will, we all do, it might, it might just serve you to... Um, remind you what's important for you. I wonder what that word might be. And there are archetype words, there's active words, there's aspect words, there's abstract words, there's all sorts of words that you can choose. And there's a method to that. Um, I've had the year of the fool, the year of the jester, the year of the pirate, the year of the gentleman, um, the year of wizard. Um, there's, yeah, there's, there's been a bunch of words uh, that, that it's, it's a fun activity, but it's, it's a gateway to much introspection and insight. And it's been, I mean, I, re I receive letters from people, handwritten letters that um, they write about this process. So it's quite lovely. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. So I, it, we're coming to the end of the show. And I was going to ask you to where can people find you? You run workshops, you work you are Sherpa for many organizations as they embark on quests, you help them build quivers of options. Where can people find you to engage in that work? You also mentioned the the other website one word, maybe you just give a replug for those. Sure. So I, I, I hope it's that one word. Uh, choose one word.com is the ritual of becoming. Um, uh, or you can go to cleverness.com forward slash word. And my website's at uh, drjasonfox.com. So that's drjasonfox.com. Um, and probably the main thing I do is uh, I write a newsletter. I have about 
11,000 folks who subscribe to my newsletter. It's an organically grown list of curious folks who like to keep up to date with my latest thinking. And so you can find that on my website. Brilliant. And thanks to the book, I'm also a subscriber to the newsletter. And hey, I, yeah, I've great. unsubscribed from some me so many uh, man over yeah, the last too. while. Uh, <laughs> oh, so so I have I have a final quote, it's my way of just recognizing your work, etc. I'd love if then you'd finish today's show with your final message to our audience, you know, the, the, the reason you do this, because there's a deeper reason you do this, I'm sure during your hermit year, you've gone and looked at this, etc. I'd love if you'd finish on that. But I'll give this final quote. And it really encapsulates everything for me, including the pin that says, uh, it says do more than just exist on a backpack. So here's what the final quote for me is. And this is from your book, How to Lead a Quest. Get born, go to school, go to university, get a job, save up for a wedding, get married, switch jobs, save up for a house, get a mortgage, have a kid, switch jobs, work hard, get a promotion, take a holiday, have a second kid, work harder, see kids through university, get another promotion, have a midlife crisis, recover, work hard, retire, go on a holiday, settle down, look after the grandkids and die. Of course, that's just the default template. There is always a better way. My final word from today. What about you, Jason? Uh, that's good. Um, I'll quote my favorite philosopher, James Cass, um, the author of Finite and Infinite Games, A Vision of Life as Play and Possibility. Um, he says, only that which can change can continue. Uh, I love that there's one more quote, um, finite players play within boundaries, infinite players play with boundaries. Uh, and I would suggest that most of the people listening to this are of a more infinite disposition. They're looking for the boundaries to play with. That's why they're listening to innovation, the, the, the work that you do. And so I would just encourage, you know, look for those, look for those I'm going to give one more quote, actually, because um, this one always works for me, too. This one comes from Andrew Ryan. He's the CEO and founder of Rapture, an underwater city in a game called Bioshock. He says, we all make choices, but in the end, our choices make us. And I just want to say thank you to everyone who's chosen to invest their time to listen to this. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It's shaping who you are, it's shaping who we are, and I'm very grateful. And thank you also for inviting me on the show. Yeah. Oh, absolute pleasure. And thank you for your contribution, author of How to Lead a Quest, a handbook for pioneering executives, the arch wizard of ambiguity and the hermit, Dr. Jason Fox. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, mate.